Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, you guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. Hello! Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am your host, Chris Sinclair, joined by my fellow co-host, Mr. Drew Garrison. How are we doing today, buddy? I'm doing good. Uh, we're doing we're doing another East Coast recording, so we're recording in the morning. So I'm fresh off of trying to get my daughter to school, which, you know, like any normal person, Mondays are just not her day, and uh, it's always a unique challenge. And you know, especially after yesterday, I I spent all day building her this massive playset for our backyard. You know, a nice like cool eight to ten hours of. Uh, really trying to be dad of the year. And then this morning I got to be told that I was the worst. So, you know, just the four-year-old keeping it fresh, keeping, keeping me on my toes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, great way to start your week. I know our fellow parents out there can, can, um, can relate, but fortunately that, like that, like that pinpointed gaslighting, it's just, it's excellent. Oh my gosh. And it's, it is so funny. And, and then the, the thing that is the worst part about be, being called the worst is that I use that phrase for too many things. So I'm the reason that she knows it. And so <laughs> it's come full circle on me <laughs> to the point where it's like, it's like, oh man, if I didn't say that so much, she wouldn't know that I'm also the worst. Um, but here we are. And, you know, just another, another day, but Fortunately, when we do record on the, you know, with our, with an East coast guest, um, that just means that we get to drink earlier in the day. So I have that going for me, which is really nice. Uh, so with, with that said, I want to welcome our guest. Um, he is the cocktail writer for the New York times and author of several cocktail books, including a proper drink. Our guest today is Robert Simonson. Robert, thank you for joining us. It's, you know, afternoon where you're at. Have you already started to hit the sauce or are you, are you still taking it easy? Did you have a crazy Sunday? What's, what's the deal? Thank you for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm luckier. It's a little later here. It's not the morning anymore. Um, yeah, usually do not drink at this hour, but you told me I had to have a drink in hand. So <laughs> I have a drink. So what are you drinking? uh this is really bad i'm, ha- I'm having a martini i like it I you like said it. that i i should choose something that i like so i'm having a uh a beef eater noli pratt martini now for you on your on your martini is that something that comes to you dirty or do you keep it relatively clean for i keep it clean uh good amount of vermouth in there usually about three to four no three to one or four to one Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I've been having problems lately because my favorite martini is increasingly impossible. I used to make it with beef eater when it was at a 47% ABV. They discontinued that in the U S about a year ago. And I made it with the Noli Pratt formulation that was called the original French dry, which they also discontinued last year. So I'm just working through my remaining bottles and trying to figure out what I'm going to do after that. I, th- I think that we'll have to do some internet research for you and, and find a couple more substitutes. So is it like the botanical build of the bee feeder is really kind of what does it for you? Or is it the higher ABV or combination of both that, that makes it the kind of the ideal martini gin? I've always liked bee feeder. I like the, uh, the botanicals in it, the botanical build, as you say, 
And, you know, when you have that higher alcohol level, you, you those flavors kind of punch in a little harder and it makes for a stronger drink. Um, the Noli Pratt, for a short window there, about 10 years, they gave us the same stuff they give people over in Europe. But now they've decided that Americans want something uh, a bit weaker and duller and they call it uh, just uh, extra dry, I believe. And it's not nearly as interesting. What a bummer. Just the, I know. The Americans ruining stuff again. This is just... Liquor companies are always making decisions that adversely affect our lives. It's not it's, fair. It's the worst. Why don't you tell um, uh, our listeners just a little bit about you? So as I had mentioned, you know, you, you're you're the cocktail writer for for the New York Times, which is, you know, small family owned publication, if I remember correctly. It is family uh, owned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, so, you know, when did you get involved with them? Like what's, uh, you know, tell, tell us a little bit more about kind of like your background and, and where you find yourself today. Sure, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I've lived in New York about 30 years. I've been a journalist all my life. I uh, spent the first 15 to 20 years writing about the arts though, theater mainly. And then I decided it was time for a change. I was always interested in uh, cocktails and mixology. My parents, you know, devoutly observed cocktail hour every uh, every day at five o'clock. And so you can't help but have an interest. And if you're from Wisconsin, you know, everybody's drinking all the time. So you wonder what that's about. So I decided to switch and I was lucky that my editors allowed me to switch. And I've been writing about cocktails for about 16 years now, uh, mainly for the New York Times, but also for other publications that you probably know, like imbibe and uh and um vine pair mm -hmm. which uh, i believe we're going to talk about in a little we bit. are yep yep you really did read the email i like that <laughs> <laughs> i read it <laughs> uh that's great so you know outside of that that influence of you know your parents and then also just you know just your surrounding area i mean you, you start it but then you continue to do it uh for for 16 years and you also have like probably one of my favorite instagram accounts because <laughs> because you're just doing stuff all the time or at least at the very minimum you're giving that illusion that you're doing stuff all the time and i feel like i was, I was like, like man like now he's doing this like now he's doing that i mean what has been the thing about cocktails that is that has inspired you to stay writing about them write books about them and then continue to have it be such a huge part of your life yeah, well, there are a few things. Um, I like history, and there's great history to cocktails. It's uh, cocktails are as old as the United States. Um, there's a wonderful ritual around cocktails. You know, the building of the drink, uh, the choreography of the bartender, the relationship between the bartender and the customer. Um, all the different spirits have a, a great, rich history behind them, um, and. Uh, for a short period of time, there a little window between my theater writing and my cocktail writing. I wrote about wine because I love wine too, but I quickly found out that wine people aren't very interesting and they're kind of boring and stuffy and it's not a lot of fun. It's fun to drink the wine. It's not fun to hang around with wine people. And so then I, I figured out that bartenders are a lot more fun yeah, <laughs> and a lot more interesting and eccentric. So um, because of the bartenders and the bars and the history of cocktails you never you never run out of stories and that's what good journalism is you know it's just telling a story has there has there been any stories that that you've come across 
um, you know, just during your time doing this where you feel like, man, I just, I don't know if I can really capture it the right way via, you know, the written word, but like, maybe there's something that you're like, I'm going to figure this out one day. I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm going to figure it out. Is there anything that comes to mind when you think about something like that? Hmm, that I felt like I was kind of behind the eight ball, didn't know enough about it. I mean, if you want, sure. I mean, however, yeah, you know, or just Um, maybe, yeah, whatever, whatever held you back from writing that story, even though like you had this interest in it. I remember in the early days when I wrote about cocktails, like we're talking about 2006 through 2009, around there, there were already, um, there was an established community that had come together and there were already people that, you know, knew a lot about the subject. And I remember interviewing them early on for articles I was writing and just thinking they knew so much more than I did. And I, I was difficult to ask the correct questions. But um, I mean, that's what a reporter does. You just keep asking questions. You can't feel stupid about it because you don't find out the answers if you don't ask the questions. And then with each article under your belt, you learn more and and then eventually you become that guy that other people interview and, and they feel like they're not asking the right questions. So uh, you just you just have to be patient and take your time. Uh, there's still times when I feel like I still need to learn more. There's always more to learn. Uh, often this has to do with like the spirit category. Um, I recently wrote a book about mezcal and tequila cocktails. And I, I knew a good bit about agave spirits, but I really had to bone up and learn uh, more before I finished that book and felt that I had, I had done the spirits um, a good service. Well, I think that's one of those categories that, you know, as soon as you start to feel confident about it all, like something comes out of left field, you're kind of like, Oh, I don't know anything. It is. uh, Yeah. It's it's, very frustrating. The spirit, it's a moving target. You know, as soon as you think, you know, everything, they just change everything and you have to learn a million things again. Well, one of the things that I talk about, because, you know, within my portfolio, we have pretty extensive agave um, options. And and the way that I look at it is when I first started with them five years ago, it was, you know, why why do we do this? Why do we do that? And more often than not, the, the answer was always, oh, because that's how we've always done it. That's how grandpa did it. That's how grandma did it. Whatever, whatever the case may be, whatever their inspiration was. And then over time, as people have asked more questions, you know, it's kind of like, oh, that actually takes that long. Or we do it for this reason. And like, now that there's a little bit more of like practical reasons behind it, not just because we've always done it, it's like, oh, this does really affect the end product, which is, um, well, as you said, it's a great moving tar- target product because it's just, there's, there's so much stuff to learn and it's. Yeah. And these days there's like, um, you know, two or three new ones on the market every week. Yeah, and yeah, that, it's hard to keep track of all the celebrities that have their own tequila or mezcal, you know. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. I I had uh, shared something yesterday from P Diddy about his tequila, and he oh. was he was going on about how like we do oranges, we don't do limes, we don't do oranges, and and I was just like I was like okay, that's that's correct. You should Does have he mean oranges. Like the garnish. He does oranges for the garnish. Well, instead of biting the lime, so then I'm sitting there oh, and I'm okay. like I'm like good for you, Diddy. Like yeah, like you're opening up your palate and stuff like that. And then he just like and then he takes his drink and then he just bites the orange. Like he doesn't actually eat the orange. And I just was I was, I was like oh you still made it weird for me. Like I don't know how this how this happened, but you know oh, it's. Wow. I was at a bar recently and I ordered a martini and they said, uh, here we, we, we don't do a, an olive or a lemon twist. We do an orange twist. 
And I just thought, well, I've never heard of that before. And I've, I've drunk a million martinis, but you know, you do you. Let's see what that's like. Mm-hmm. How was How it? How was it? Interesting. And I'll never <laughs> order it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah that is uh it doesn't seem like that profile would really work out um chris uh, are you hitting the bottle list early or are you waiting till a little bit later no man we're we're doing it we're okay it. so what are you what are we're you drinking so i've got a uh, beautiful cup of medium roast uh uh cordy brothers uh nicaraguan coffee and uh it's lovely and it's being paired with a a nice little side of uh of uh, yellow spot oh, oh i love yellow spot there you go hmm. there you go so you're still you're still feeling the the residuals from from saint patty's day you're still in Why the not? irish mood yeah yeah uh, you know i mean for irish whiskey now we have so much more to choose from and uh we've got really beautiful whiskeys coming coming out that we get to we get to explore and get to enjoy and i i'm really excited about the next few years to see see what what starts hitting the american market from from ireland and all the new distilleries that are opening uh, but as of right now yellow spot is sort of uh, that's my litmus test for just beautiful irish whiskey yeah, I, definitely coming coming around on it as well. I mean, I think for uh, a long time, it was just I was like, ah, it wasn't really that interesting to me, but we didn't have that many options. And as time has gone out, like we're getting more and more and more. And it's just, it's insane to see the explosion of Irish whiskey. It's really exciting. And um, there's a group chat that Chris and I are in where we just like tell dad jokes to each other um, all day. And it's just like as corny as it can be. But one of our buddies, Travis, actually shared um, this really great, uh, ad from Tullamore Dew that was like celebrity free since like 1837 and it's just like the, the matriarch of Tullamore Dew holding like a glass of whiskey which is like that's amazing like way to kind of lean into that and uh you know still have fun with it um so that's yeah so I, I I'm right there with you I've been drinking more Irish whiskey obviously over the past week uh than than I usually do uh Robert one of the other things that that you're working on right now is actually your your Substack newsletter and that was one thing that they had highlighted for us and and something i'm actually interested in and in, in terms of you know, kind of what is it like what are what are what are your subscribers getting and, and stuff like that so could you talk about your your Substack and also for the guys who don't know what Substack is like start there and then get into kind of what your contributions are Sure. Uh, yeah. What is it is a good question. I mean, quite frankly, I didn't know what Substack was about six months ago. Um, but it's one of these things that sort of became more prominent uh, during the pandemic. Uh, basically, uh, Substack is a home for um, newsletters, which we used to call blogs 15 years ago. And um, you can start one, anyone can start one, and anyone can subscribe. And then there's this kind of direct line between the reader and the writer, uh, both in the uh, editing and the content, you communicate with one another if you want, and also the economic aspect. You know, you pay the newsletter person directly and Substack gets a little percentage. So um, I, uh, I learned during the pandemic, like most people did in almost every field, that everything's tenuous and your employer perhaps doesn't necessarily care about you. So you have to find out how to fend better for yourself, perhaps become a more independent, you know, be the master of your own destiny. So I observed some other fellow writers doing Substack and having some good success with it. You know, they were writing about exactly what they wanted to write about, 
which of course, you know, makes you passionate if you're doing exactly what you want to do. And I, I talked to them, I interviewed them. Uh, I didn't interview them, I just questioned them and um, got some ideas about what I might do if I did it. And uh, slowly but surely kind of pieced my uh, concept together, which is basically me writing about everything that interests me or I have written about over the past 30 years because I've had several beats, as I've mentioned. I haven't just written about one thing, uh, though most people think of me as a cocktail writer now, and that's fine. Uh, so I started it and uh, what you do is you just post as many times a week as you want. You write about what you want. You keep some of it free so that people can see it and see what it's all about. And then the other stuff is paid for the people who are paid subscribers. They get, you know, more material, you know, some of the, uh, I don't know, some of the choicer bits perhaps. So I've been doing it about uh, two months now. And I must say it's been very freeing, very uh, liberating, and uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. It's called, oh, by the way, I should mention the name. It's called The Mix with Robert Simonson, and it's easy to find. Um, it's right there on Substack, and I'm happy to say that it's now ranked top 25 food and drink Substacks. Wow. So, In two yeah. months. Look at you. Yeah. Uh, I just work hard. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that you mentioned was that there's there's a little bit more of a dialogue that exists mm -hmm. between your readers and, and yourself, how does that manifest on, on Substack? Like, how does that work? Well, they can comment, of course, and I try to respond to every comment. Sometimes you put up a discussion thread, like, you know, say, you know, what's your, what's your favorite, you know, agave spirit or mezcal, and everyone gets in on that thread and you have a little conversation. Um, I put out what I call field reports. There are these little audio clips where you, I'm usually in a bar, and I'm say I'm in this bar and I'm drinking this drink and you know it's happening right now and uh, people seem to like that I think because they don't have to read anything you just listen to it <laughs> for 30 seconds and then you're done responsibility's over um we're going to start doing video stuff too uh just uh try to keep in contact with people as much as possible and and you try to keep it as personal as possible you know like off journalism is you know, supposed to be objective. So a lot of it's impersonal. So this is personal. So it's a lot of just content creation and then being able to interact with people who potentially could be like-minded or, uh, mm -hmm. or are curious in, in, in learning more. I like the fact that you can do multiple types of things. So it's not just writing, but the video stuff. Now, what's the reaction at the bar when you're talking into your phone by yourself? Like, here I am. Like, it's like, is it like, a, is it, are people like, is this a memento thing? Like what's going on with this guy? You know? Um, well, usually the bar is crowded enough, uh, you know, that they're not noticing what I'm doing. Um, I'm certainly careful to choose a moment, you know, when the bartender's not standing right in front of me and like, gonna like stare at me, like I have two heads, you know, I try to be discreet about it. So there, there is no reaction because I've, I've hidden it pretty well. And okay. maybe there's reaction when it goes up. Who knows? Yeah, or there's just people that think, yeah, a guy talking to himself at the bar. That's actually pretty normal. So uh, <laughs> yeah, people do stuff with their phones all the time these days. <laughs> so I don't think people look twice. Um, so, you know, I, over the years, like you said, you've, you've written these books and, you know, you become known as more of, of a cocktail writer. Like, has there ever been any situations where you've walked into a bar uh, and you've been like recognized for your writing or like what's has that experience come up? Uh, yes. Um, unfortunately, it, it comes up all the time. Um, 
like if I wanted to become a bar critic and be incognito, it would be impossible. Mm -hmm. um, as, as, I don't know. Somehow, I guess my pictures are on the books. I have no idea. <laughs> but um, it's very rare I'm in a cocktail bar that, you know, someone uh, doesn't recognize me or start talking to me within a half hour. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think it's like good and bad, right? Because it is never, good and bad. Because you can never fully escape, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I look at as, you know, people in our industry where it's like, if you walk into a bar, no matter what your capacity is, you know, writer, distributor, you know, bottle shop owner, owner, it's like, you can't turn it off. If you're in a bar, you're thinking mm -hmm. about different bar related things. Like, I, I mean, I remember one time being in Hawaii and my dad's like, so what's wrong with this bar? And I'm like, please don't do this to me right now. Like I'm trying to relax. And he's just like, he's like no, 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 I want to know. And I'm like, well, this, 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 and this, like, this is, um, this stuff is ridiculous. Um, hey, Chris, did you have any questions for, for Robert? Yeah. I, you know, talking about uh, being like a cocktail bar critic, this is probably going to take us on way, way of a tangent. But it, it, it's something that definitely pinged in my brain and, and seems, at least for me, uh, to be one of my biggest qualms with the whole um, critiquing industry, if you will, which would be that on the service side, we all know what the critics look like anyway. So I, f mm -hmm. I feel like there's this um, uh, pseudo veil that exists at least for the consumer of the content that you know oh these guys are just going in and they're getting this uh this real experience anyway do you right what, what do you think about that do you think that that's um that that's that's the reality or um or or that that really people in in the journalistic side get to get get to really go in and have an honest experience to be able to, to break down and, and, and deliver into like little consumable bites for their, their readership. Yeah, it is difficult to get the real experience. Um, you're right. You know, like restaurant critics, the restaurants all know what these people look like and their pictures in the kitchen and everything. And so they're not going to get the experience that an average diner would get. And I know that I don't get the experience that the average, you know, drinker gets in a bar. And uh, when I did review uh, bars, which was for a time, a period of time at a website, uh, sometimes I got lucky, even sometimes I didn't. But most of the time, you know, you get the favored treatment and you get like the best example of every cocktail because they're actually, you know, concentrating while they're making it. Uh, one of the ways that I tried to like solve that problem is I would uh, send in my wife first and have her sit at the bar and order a drink. And then I would come join her and she'd report what her experience had been because they didn't recognize her. And so that would be a way to even it out and find out what, um, what the real level of service was at the bar. That's clever. That's, I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm for that technique. That's, a, that's good, get good methodology. Yeah, um, there's actually, uh, <laughs> I won't say which one, but there is a bar that we uh, enjoy here in New York, um, <laughs> which I love and have always gotten good service, but my wife has never gotten good service. At. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's, it's like, hey, it's one of the benefits of, of being in the industry, right? Is That's you, right. You, get, you get taken care of and it's, I always find it hilarious because my wife has a love-hate relationship 
with my position within the industry because on one hand she's like yeah i like the fact that we get kind of like the nicer stuff the better treatment sometimes you know free drinks apps whatever or just kind of like we like the other day we got um happy hour extended for us so it was just kind of like it was like hey those things are really nice and then there's also times where she's like can we just go somewhere that you don't know somebody and we can just have a normal experience it's like no no we cannot do that you know, even when we try to go to different cities, it's just, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky. We have friends in a lot of different places and it's, it's cool to, to have those, um, experiences now from, uh, to kind of piggyback onto, to Chris's question from like the critic side, I mean, and I know you're not doing that anymore, but is there, you know, ever like this, like Wayne sense of responsibility for like the success of a bar when you either give a good or bad review, because I know I've looked at that with, um, some people who have, you know, especially now because everybody can have a uh, like a platform to speak from and they start to give ratings on things. You're kind of like, like are, you know, and most of these people, and this isn't you, but it's like a lot of these people are like, like, you're not really qualified to be talking about this stuff, yet you have a following, you know, and I wonder from your perspective where you are qualified, you have these things like, did you ever feel like, like, oh man, like this really wasn't a great experience. Like this is, this is not going to help their bar restaurant when I release this review or was it just kind of like, I'm trying to take emotion out of this and just give my true, honest experience? Well, my ideas on this whole subject have evolved. Uh, when I was doing the reviews, um, I felt strongly about uh, cocktail bars um, and that they were as important as restaurants. And, you know, if, if we're all arguing that cocktails are a culinary achievement and, and bars um, are the equivalent of restaurants in terms of, you know, the, what you can achieve and accomplish there, then shouldn't bars be reviewed the same way restaurants are? I mean, if, if, if they're that great, you know, they deserve to be appraised seriously. And so that's what I brought to, um, brought to uh, that scenario. Um, I soon discovered that, you know, maybe I was wrong. I, I don't think uh, the public needs bars to be reviewed the same way restaurants are reviewed. I don't, I think bars serve a very different purpose for people. I mean, they care if it's a fun bar, if it's a hot bar, if it has good drinks, if it has good music, um, you know, and they're gonna choose those things um, on their own and what they, you know, read in the magazines and papers. Um, I don't think they're gonna, like I never felt bad if I gave a bar a bad review because I never thought it was actually going to impact their bottom line at all because I didn't think people were actually reading the reviews and saying, well, I'm not going to that bar now. And, uh, and I didn't think that bartenders were reading them and says, well, now I'm not going to support my colleague. You know, it's like, it was just kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, whistling into the wind, you know? Yeah. And then, and then the pandemic came along and, and my need to review bars disappeared completely because all you wanted to do was support them and help them and keep them in business and uh, you know make sure that these people still had a job and a salary. Right. I think that's a great place to transition into our top stories. I think it's time for our opinions on stories that we've heard from reputable sources. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so just for our listeners at home, we're also we're recording on Zoom today, and we just really hope that the audios all come across great. I don't know if they're going to, but we're we're going to find out. So we're we're trying new things, and we're we're doing this and we're doing that. Um, but the first story, and to uh, Robert's point of what what we were just talking about, is uh, the restaurants have just uh, there's a new spending bill that was just released by the White House, and it's uh, 1.5 trillion dollars but none of it is going to any type of restaurant relief fund. Um, so over the past two years, uh, we have had just obviously a hellish time trying to figure out how to survive in this environment. I We've talked about this numerous times before where the restaurant industry and the bar industry has been kind of used as the scapegoats for a lot of the issues. And then we're asked to make the ultimate sacrifice by shutting down, by not having indoor dining and then have been kind of left out in the cold. And this is a further continuation of that. Um, 46% of the 4,200 restaurants survey said that if they didn't receive any more funds, they would be closing, which uh, is, you know, really, really devastating news as well as there was 300,000 uh, restaurants that applied for relief, only a third of them even got it by the time the money ran out. And since the pandemic has started, 90,000 bars and restaurants have closed down since then. Um, you know, this industry means a lot to all of us. And when you see these like stuff like this happening, I mean, I think one of the positives of the pandemic is that there actually is there's actually is an organization that is representing restaurants now in the White House, but they're still brand new. So they don't have maybe necessarily the way to throw around. But, you know, Robert, when you read this and, you know, and with as much as bars mean to you, I mean, do you see a path that maybe our industry should start to get on in order to be part of these, you know, spending bills? Like what else can we do as an industry? Yeah, it's been very difficult. Uh, what, what, what can the industry do is just keep trying. Um, like you mentioned, the effort is new. Uh, restaurants and bars didn't really have an organization, um, a foundation with um, lobbyists and such things like that, you know, to go and curry favor with politicians and in Washington and here in New York and Albany. Um, so yeah, I don't think the politicians are really listening too hard uh, to to the restaurants and bars right now, and uh, worrying that if they you know cut them free or don't give them any help, that they're really going to pay for it down the line politically. Um, it's been very frustrating to watch, extremely frustrating. Um, I'm sure in every city, I know mainly the perspective here in New York that the the way uh, not only politicians have kind of not helped but almost gone out of their way to, to be harmful. Um, they, I still believe politicians do not take it seriously. The, uh, the pain and suffering and strife and turmoil that the service industry has gone through for the past two years. Um, these are small businesses. These are uh, independent owners. Um, it's, it's the big industries that are gonna get the ear of the politicians uh, the small ones won't, you know, they, they all politicians. I'm very cynical about politics after the past two years or four years or six years. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they listened, uh, to the big boys and we all heard about all the money going to huge industries like the airline industry. And then they turn around and give it to their stockholders and they fire a bunch of people. Um, we know that restaurants and bars would not do this. They would use it to, you know, hold on to people and try to keep their employees safe and, keep themselves uh, their head above water. 
you, you sometimes have to wonder if politicians actually go out to eat at all or go to bars. You wonder, I mean, maybe they don't. Maybe they go to one restaurant or maybe they just eat at home because you, you get this idea that they've got, they're completely tone deaf and they have no conception what it is like working in a restaurant in a bar past two years. And you also think they've probably never had a job in the service industry. I think that tends to be the case for a lot of people, right? Like I remember mm-hmm. I, there was like those memes that were kind of making their their way around where, you know, at a place like Israel and different Eastern European countries, like, you know, you're required to do two years in the military, you know, mm-hmm. in America, you should be required to do two years in the service industry, you know, yeah, just agree. so you can, you know, create a little bit of a soul. Um, and I, and I have that empathy. Right. And, and I think, and I, and I totally agree with you. I'm, I've really become, um, disenchanted with any aspect of politics over the past couple of years. Um, whether that's two, four, six, I mean, I just kind of like the whole thing. And, uh, I, I see that too, as like, they've been, again, they've been used, you know, this industry has been used as a scapegoat. So early on when it was like, oh, everything needed to be, you know, sanitized and stuff like that, we need to wipe these things down. And we come to find out that, you know, this, you know, COVID was not being transmitted via services, you know, Mm -hmm. but it was, but at the time it was still ridiculous because, and this isn't the case with every bar or restaurant, but those places tend to be the cleaner, the cleaner places you're going to go to. And one of the things that we found out in California was people weren't getting sick at bars and restaurants. They were getting sick at home gatherings, you know, mm-hmm. cause they didn't have anywhere else to go and, and things like that. And, um, and one of, one of the people that I look up to, uh, Ed Rudisell, who owns a couple of different bars in Indianapolis or used to own four. Now he's down to two. Uh, you know, he was, he has been, one of the people that's been the loudest about it was like, you know, we did everything that you said, we shut down, we, we did this, right. we did that. And then there was no relief coming on the other end. And, and I think you're right. Like these people are not going into bars or restaurants because it's like, how could you, like, how could you go in and, and see that all the servers and stuff are still masked up, you know, that they're, you still have the plexiglass everywhere. They're doing everything they can to just get you know, tips, it's, it's ridiculous. Chris, when you read this, what were some of your impressions and, and thoughts on, you know, just another spending bill that's over a trillion dollars and there's nothing for the restaurant industry? I think it's incredibly short-sighted. I mean, yeah, at least pre-pandemic numbers, we were looking at uh, 15% of the American workforce was, was service industry and service industry related. And that, that doesn't even have to do with supply chain. Right. Uh, and, and, so not bailing out, bailing out, not, not supporting, not like you said, you know, we were all pulling our weight, following the rules, doing everything that we could just to stay open. Um, and then just getting completely thrown under the wheels of the buses is just, I, I think incredibly short-sighted because at that, at those numbers, right. You mentioned 900,000 restaurants across, across the country have shut down. If, if all of those places have 10 people who work for them, right? And that's that's a reasonable number. That's not like, it's not outrageous. Some will have 30, some will have five. That puts you at almost a million people that this directly affects then. A million people. That is a That is not an insignificant number, right? That it does not affect politicians in some way, fashion, or form. So not, not paying attention in to this seems like the biggest way to shoot yourself in the foot 
right? Like, yes, obviously we don't have the money to fill your pockets for spending campaigns and whatnot, but you know what the industry does have? Time and ability to show up. So if you're looking at having people show up at rallies and look good, you could easily get service industry people to become uh, engaged to support you in some way, fashion, or form that at the very least it's like really good PR and that speaks volumes as well. Yeah. I think one of the other things to highlight is through some of the relief funds that, that did go out to these restaurants is they were chock full of stipulations, right? So a lot of restaurant cost is not necessarily in your workforce. There was a lot of other things that, that were coming up and there was, there was enough money to be able to pay your people, take care of them, but then also take care of all your other bills because that was a huge part of it. And, um, you know, we're seeing it now in Sacramento. I don't know how it is in, in New York, Robert, but like, we're at, like every day, there's a new story about a landlord kicking out a restaurant tenant or trying mm-hmm. to kick out a restaurant tenant because rent is coming due. And there's all these back rents. There's, there's also back taxes and things like that, that all these restaurants have been trying to hold on. And so it's, it's kind of like, I mean, I don't even know what number we're on now, but fourth, fifth wave of these closures that mm-hmm. is coming or it's going to continue to happen. I mean, have you seen that? I mean, now at the same time, there's also been new places that have opened up, like the ones that, you know, restaurants that called called it quits at the very beginning. Now new places are coming, but now there's another wave of kind of like, oh man, now that restaurant's gone. This restaurant's gone. Yeah. They, they really can't do it much longer. What's it like in New York? Um, it's similar. Uh, a lot of places that had survived were thrown for a loop when Omicron uh, came along because it came along during the holiday season, which is when most bars and restaurants make a lot of their money through private parties and things like that. And they lost all that. Um, through this whole time, there were lots of calls for uh, rent relief or rent cancellation, and those calls were never answered in Albany. Um, I imagine, you know, landlords have, a, have a, some pretty big influence up there and developers. And so that was never going to fly. And un- unless that happened, uh, even if the bars and restaurants survived, they were going to be surviving with this massive debt load. And, uh, and once landlords were told that, you know, there was a point uh, where there was a moratorium on vacating people from, from properties. But once that ended, you know, the evictions started and they, they, they continue to this day. And then the landlords are not, they're not sympathetic largely. And, you know, and they want their money. And if a person can't pay the money, they're happy to uh, get them out and get someone else. I think that's another part of it with the politicians and the landlords. They view it as a kind of a transitory business. Okay, so a bar goes out of business. I can find another bar to take its place and then I'll take their money. So uh, they're not invested in the success of their tenants. You know, what's you- interesting about that is, uh, you know, right around the corner from where my bottle shop is located um, in Sacramento, there's um, in the downtown area is K street, which is uh, I'm located just off of. Uh, and I was just having this conversation the other day Two very, uh, at least a new coffee shop that was doing relatively well pre pandemic. And then an old cafe that had been there as long as I've been in Sacramento, um, both shut down during pandemic and both in my understanding were due to landlord being completely unsympathetic. Um, mm-hmm. But now we're sitting with an entire building 
with all of their retail empty and for lease and no end in sight of when anybody's going to be able to come in and afford to pay those quote unquote right. downtown rent prices. Well, that's because there's no vacancy tax. There used to be a thing called vacancy tax. So if a landlord kept a space empty for years, creating an eyesore, you know, in the community, they were taxed for that. Landlords can wait it out as long as they want. Do you, do you see, um, like the industry bouncing back because I think one of the, one of my concerns for it is the restaurant industry in, in particular, the bar industry was always kind of looked at as like Teflon, right? You drank when times were good. You drank when times were bad. It was the one industry that, that people uh, just kind of just did well in. And then over the past couple of years, at least here in California, you know, you had this huge influx of, you know, quote unquote entrepreneurs who couldn't get into any other business because of things like Amazon and stuff like that had dominated so many other sectors that they're like, well, they haven't dominated the restaurant industry. So we're going to bring in a bunch of people, you know, into that trying to make money. But now people are like, oh no, you can definitely fail at this. And in pretty fantastic fashion. I mean, is there, I mean, so, I'll, so, I'm, so both of you guys, I want you to answer this, but Robert, I'll start with you. Like, do you see, do you see this rest that this industry coming back and if so what i mean what's an ideal timeline for you uh, i i see your point though i've always thought you know i mean we all know that 50 percent of restaurants and bars that open close you know within a year so there's always been plenty of room to fail but it's now harder and harder um you, there's there's no way out i mean if the rent keeps going up and expenses and you know uh, materials that you need for food and drinks keep going up uh, there's only uh, so much you can charge the customer for a cocktail or uh, a plate of uh, food before they move on to another place where it's cheaper. There has to uh, there has to be some sympathy. There has to be some help from the government, uh, from the forces that be, if they want these places to continue. And like you said, it's short-sighted. I don't, I didn't really, I never understood anything that Albany did the past years because surely, I mean, even if uh, Cuomo, who was our governor during most of that time, even if he, he doesn't go to restaurants and bars, surely he understands that part of the reason New York is great and part of the reason people come here is because of the restaurants and bars, because we have fabulous restaurants and bars. And if you take out all those and you just leave, you know, whatever the big chains or, or something like that, I mean, what's left? I mean, I can only think the calculus in his brain is that, oh, it doesn't matter if these places close, they'll be replaced by something else that's just as good, which is a terrible way to think. Well, and, and, and incredibly inaccurate, right? I mean, yeah, I don't. You're, you're I getting, mean, it takes it takes a long time, you know, for a bar or restaurant to get very good, and so if you rip it up by the roots after ten or twenty or thirty years, you're not going to get something just as good right away. And Chris, what do you think in terms of um, timeline in this industry bouncing back? I man, I I I don't like being in the prediction game. Uh, if, if the last Trying to create content here, bro, come on, the man. Last few, Jesus. Well, if the last few years have showed us anything, it's like anytime you, you think you have an answer of what, what could happen. You, you trying to read the tea leaves, everything's going to go awry and there's going to be, you know, X, Y, Z factors that now come into it. So 
I, you know, I have no clue. I, I think that there, are, there is a constant though that people, people need places to gather outside of their own home. We need community. We are a communal species, so there will always be something. But you know, Robert's right. You know, there's, there's only so much you can charge before people go elsewhere. And I, I don't, I don't foresee Denny's and McDonald's being the places that that people gather readily. You know consistently all over all over the country you know we we like more honest experiences but i don't you know in the short term i don't i don't really see a lot happening you know that that's gonna start to change that in in a significant way yeah if you if you see any of the bars that survived here uh, you look at them and you know um, that behind that is a good relationship between the landlord and the tenant. Mm-hmm. And that's why that happened. Uh, there's usually no other reason. I can, I can say that for, for us as well, for our bottle shop. I mean, that was, our landlord was proactive. They, they read the writing on the wall and they came to us first, which was great because we were stressing about having to go to them. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's nice when that still happens. Yo. Okay, so our next topic um, comes from Vine Pair, which Rob is very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has to deal with uh, recruiting and bars and restaurants recruiting from fast food places. And it's a really it's a really interesting article, and I definitely encourage everybody to go out there and read it. But it just basically goes into talking about more bars and restaurants focusing on um, places like Chipotle and recruiting recruiting uh you know potential employees from there people making the the change from daytime rush to nighttime mixology and then how being brought up in these corporate structures has been beneficial to people but then it does end the article with some people saying like you know with the everything that we just talked about with kind of the um the unknown with bars and restaurants, maybe going back mm-hmm. to those like more corporate structures. And so uh, I just really enjoyed this article. I think there's so many things that do translate to uh, bartending. I think one of the ones that they didn't mention here, but I thought has always been a really easy transition for people has been to be a barista and then go into the cocktail game. I think there's a lot of similarities there, but I had never thought of somebody working at Chipotle and then making that move. But it, it totally makes sense if you think about your Chipotle experience. Um, so, so Robert, you know, you, you spend a lot of time in bars and in different places. And, you know, outside of that, are there any other industries that you see like, man, those people would be really good as, as a bartender? What do you think? Yeah, that article um, it didn't surprise me um, uh, for a long time. I know, I know a lot of bar owners, cocktail bar owners, who have um, hired baristas, uh, not so much fast food employees, but baristas has always been like a ground where they always went to looking for potential mixologists. Um, at the beginning of like the cocktail revival, you know, about 15 or so years ago, I think that cocktail bars went to other bars, like whatever, a sports bar or a beer bar, whatever, trying to look for a bartender who might be interested in learning a new set of skills and creating cocktails. As we got into the revival, there were so many talented cocktail bartenders that one of the problems you faced as a bar owner is if you brought in, you know, um, a 
you know, a star tender from another bar and they come in with their own set of ideas and their way of doing things and they think their way of doing things is correct. And so the bar owner naturally wants to train them their way, you know, so that becomes like a clash of wills. So in order to avoid that, you go outside the bar industry because the barista comes in with no conception of like how, what makes a good cocktail bartender. And so the owner trains them from the ground up. So uh, I, th I think that's been going on for a while. Um, I remember when I was researching my book, A Proper Drink, which is a history of the cocktail revival. One of the things I found out, which surprised me, is that in London, um, a lot of the best cocktail bartenders came out of uh, TGI Fridays and the Hard Rock Cafe in Planet Hollywood. Because back then, not too many bars were concentrating on cocktails. And whatever you think about the cocktails at those places, they actually had them. And they had a lot of them. Uh, like if you wanted to be a bartender at TGI Fridays in London, which was a very lucrative job and people really wanted that job, you had to learn how to make uh, 200 cocktails. You had to free pour. And I'm not lying about this. You had to do it uh, blindfolded eventually. You had to know where the bottles were in front of you. And they'd say, you know, make the Long Island iced tea. And you, you had to do it blindfolded. This is what they told me. This is what bartenders told me. <laughs> um, so there is a history of that being a training ground. Obviously, TJ Fridays is not what it used to be uh, in the 70s. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, that model, that transitional model still holds to a certain extent. Yeah, I think uh, in this area, there's a there's a large group of people who came from Outback Steakhouse. Like oh, yeah. it's it's uh, I don't I don't what know what kind why. of cocktails do they serve at Outback Steakhouse? Uh, you know, I I have no idea. Australian yeah. margaritas. Yeah, Australian margaritas. I feel like like a lot of a lot of the friends that Chris and I have, like for whatever reason, there just was a hub of they they all just came out of Outback. Like that's well, just. And there was at least like downtown here, there was a, um, there was a, not Planet Hollywood. There was a, a hard rock. Uh, right oh downtown. yeah, that's right. right. Right where the, uh, the, the King stadium is now in downtown Sacramento, there used to be, there used to be a hard rock. And a lot of, a lot of the folks who I've worked with over the last few years, a lot of them got their, got their start and spent definitely a strong part of their career uh, it, coming out, coming out of there. You know, I, I've always been in the market for, and I still am because I haven't found one yet. I'm still in the market for um, getting my hands on a TGIF uh, bar training manual. Oh, I, I, I yeah, they used to be, I heard they were very thick, you know, very, very long manuals you had to memorize. I, I, I can't find one anywhere. So if you ever come across one, I would, I would gladly give you money for it in just the, the <laughs> decade Plus, I've been I've been doing uh, bar education and consulting on places. I I know for a fact that TGIF had this really incredible training program. I myself came out of Macaroni Grill, which was which was uh, uh, you know certainly an you know close to, but I'm certain nowhere near how intense the TGI Fridays one was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we, uh, had to, we had to free pour, we had to do everything. Yeah. I remember talking to one of the more prominent bartenders in San Francisco, and he got his start at a cheesecake factory. 
Um, and so they once had a lot of cocktails too, if you can believe it. I mean, Cheesecake um, Factory downtown San Francisco, I mean, those bartenders do serious dollars. They make mm -hmm. a lot of money. And there was a guy who used to be um, very important in the London scene called Dick Bradsell. He trained a lot of bartenders. He, whenever he opened a new bar, and he opened many new bars as a consultant, he always uh, went to TGI Fridays and got his talent there. He said that they kept their, they were very clean. They worked clean. Their stations were never messy. Well, that was one thing that was mentioned in the article as well, was talking about the corporate structure. And one of the people they interviewed grew up in the uh, McDonald's corporate chain and how every 20 minutes, an alarm would go off, everybody have to wash their hands. And then every 30 minutes, another alarm would go off and you'd have to clean your, your area, I believe is what, is what they did. Um, and, and I know that's been one thing that we've, we've had multiple guests on that have talked about, like, you know, how do you put together a, like a proper training program for people? Because I think one of the, you know, one of your big issues in this industry is turnover, right? And I know that Chris believes this to be the case that, if you give people the tools and you give people the skills, you know, to be successful, you have a better chance of retaining them. And, but it's, it's putting the effort in, which not necessarily every place is willing to do. It's kind of like, it's like, Oh yeah, you're here. This is where your stuff's at. Just memorize these drinks and then kind of go from there. Um, so with that being the case, you know, Robert, during your travels, has there, has there ever been, you know, a bar that you saw, like what their training program was that like really sticks out to you now. So I, mean, I know you just mentioned someone, but is there anybody else that you're kind of like, like, wow, like their training program was, was really cool or you got to participate in it or, or anything like that? I no, no one ever invited me to uh, participate in a training program. You know, bars are kind of territorial, you know, and they'll only let a reporter go so far. It's like yeah. into their territory, but I have heard of them. Um, employees only here in New York famously uh, they have a kind of a Europe European style system where you have to apprentice for years before you get to be an actual uh, bartender uh, I believe that was the case at Angel Share too which is a Japanese style bar here that's been here for about 30 years um, every place is different but usually I I think there's if it's a serious bar and you don't have a like a ton of experience you always you always have to begin as a bar back spend time back there you know and uh they they take it a lot more seriously than they uh than they used to but um i've never actually laid my hands on a training manual that's got to be secret information that actually that that might be kind of a cool deep dive you know just to kind of look at different i mean I love looking at old uh cocktail books like i have one of the like i have a i have a one of the Trader Vic ones that mm -hmm. is, it's just really cool to kind of see their mindset towards stuff as they were, as they were building out cocktails and, and things like that. Um, but it would be interesting to see what the training process was for people. Cause you know, I, I think keeping it in the tiki realm, if you look at somebody like Don, the beachcomber who didn't tell his guys anything, right. And it was just bottles that had numbers on them. That was, was like, hey, right. just pour this into, this into this. Yeah, it was all, it was so, so secretive. And then they still managed to get out somehow, you know. But um, yeah. but uh, I, I think that would be a really cool, you know, deep dive. Like maybe that's a that's another weird obsession that we can have, Chris, where we can just get into, see if we can find old training manuals. for. I think bars. there's a new book coming out by a guy named Toby Maloney who founded Violet Hour in Chicago. 
It's called The Bartender's Manifesto. And I do think he gets into the nitty gritty of every aspect of bartending. So yeah, we had perhaps um, he's actually publishing his manual in book form. Who knows? Yeah, we had uh, we had Emma Jansen on a few weeks ago who actually co-wrote the book with him. And she was talking about it. And uh, outside of the fact that his name is amazing, I'm very excited to read that book because, yeah, it just it does sound like this really, uh, you know, kind of like pulling the curtain back and seeing and seeing the wizard back there, you know. So yeah. I think it's I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And and I do and I do think that people you know want that. I think over the past two years, you've had this huge explosion of like the home bartending right just out of there's no other choice like you you had to do that but then also people really started to experiment with a lot of different things because they couldn't go to their local bar so i think you know creating that content that gives people even more insight into bartending and stuff like that is going to be really cool but that's a book that i'm really excited i believe it comes out in june if i remember yeah i think so this summer yeah yeah i've been i've been waiting with bated breath for that one as well yeah uh, yeah He's been talking about that for years. It's finally coming out. It's finally coming out. And uh, yeah, Emma has been really has been pushing it uh, on her on her you know, social media sites. And I'm we're, we're very excited to 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 get our hands on that one, because I think it's going to be a really, That's, really great um, Emma Jansen, the co-writer. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you have to have someone to organize the thoughts of a bartender. Right. I mean, if you've ever had a conversation <laughs> with a bartender, it's a little bit all over the place. So. You know, yeah. having having someone with that with that pedigree is uh, is probably probably a good thing. Um, all right, so with that with that said, kind of bringing it back to um, the topic, is there are there any more thoughts on where restaurants and bars are pulling from, or maybe they should be pulling from for for their talent pool right now? For their talent, yeah. Uh, well, I know that they're all hurting. You know, for staff. You know, it's a uh what is it a buyer's market or a seller's market i don't know what is it when like the staff can call the shots i have no uh, idea i think it's a i think it's a buyer's market that's a yeah. Liz, Liz pierce that's what she called it you know yeah um hopefully you know one of the things that bars have learned from this you know that where they could improve themselves is um you know their their relationship with the staff you know making that more positive more respectful uh, I'm not saying that they're not, but, you know, obviously there's got to be some places that could, could do better. Um, so hopefully they're heading in that direction, you know, a different kind of work model. Mm. Um, also, I think there needs to be a, a rethink on the uh, relationship with the customer. And I'm not blaming the bars at all. I'm kind of blaming the customers. It's like maybe we can find a, a better way <laughs> to get along. Um, so uh, there's that. And uh, I, I have no idea how I would handle that as a bar owner. I'm sure it would be a tremendous headache. I'm sure it is a tremendous headache. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I, I had a conversation with a former bartender just last week who got out of the business because right when he came back in one of the gaps that we had where bars opened back up and indoor dining, and he, he lasted one shift, went to his boss, was like, I cannot deal with people anymore. Like, I'm just done, you know, after sitting through everything and hoping that people would come back appreciative he just was like they're still terrible and i'm out you know so there's definitely a responsibility on customers to uh just you know be better i guess there's another way to put it just be better yeah i i think the owners the bars have to stand up for themselves and stand up for their workers maybe there's a you know like when the cocktail revival began um 
the bartenders were all trying to train the the, the uh, customers how to drink better without you know seeming like a dick about it. Um, and they succeeded, you know, and now everyone drinks better, or at least a lot of people drink better. Uh, they're a little more selective, a little more discriminating. Uh, maybe there's a way to do that with just, you know, plain behavior. I have yeah. no idea how you start with that, but there's got to be a way. There has to be a way. Uh, I think, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, I think it's a little bit of a trickle down. It's, it's, it's got to start from, from the ownership perspective of, of your restaurant and bar. You know, I, I think one of the one of the issues that I've found over my time of uh, bar managers and bar owners uh, recruiting from fast food and recruiting from baristas is that then they hold the the sort of the reins and the um, their theoretical professional trajectory in their hands, and there's no there's no transparency in the knowledge that they are giving to their employees as they're training them. There's no, there's no written timeline. There's no, you know, follow these steps and you gain this knowledge. It's, it ends up being a little bit of this manipulative gatekeeping of knowledge that I've witnessed. And it's, it's burned out a lot of bartenders that I've seen who've come into, into the industry from being a barista or, or working in uh, fast food. So I would argue towards the bar owners and bar managers, hey, maybe don't do that. <laughs> maybe get, maybe be a little bit more uh, open source, a little bit more clear um, and a little less emotionally manipulative uh, with your staff and give them a reason to feel appreciated and feel like mm-hmm. while they might not have all the answers that they're on on the route to getting there. Yeah, transparency and directness is always good. And I feel like that that could then buy, you know, translate to your guest experience as well. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yo. You know who's dope? Them over there. <laughs> so now it's time for one of my favorite segments of the show, which is our dope follows. We're gonna te- we're gonna tell you who you should be following. It could be a book. It could be an Instagram account different podcasts still listen to ours but you can listen to somebody else's maybe a sub stack that's another thing that we have to add to our repertoire now yeah uh, i know i'm gonna be in the mix pretty soon um but this is where we tell you who you should be checking out so robert kick it off who's your dope follow uh just one or you can do as many as you want like like right. last week we threw the we threw caution to the wind and two of us had three so i mean oh, go wow. nuts <laughs> okay yeah. i'll just i'll throw out a couple uh sub stacks uh, that inspired me um there's one um by hannah raskin used to be the food critic uh down at a charleston newspaper and she uh, broke freeze doing her own thing it's called the food section and there's a one uh by alicia kennedy it's called from the desk of alicia kennedy and she also writes about food but she kind of writes it from um often from a social and political perspective, you know, the politics of food, what's, what's, what's behind it, what's behind the people who make it, et cetera, and that sort of thing. So those two, um, I was thinking about an Instagram thing to follow. Um, I follow so many and there's so many good ones, but I'll just mention one uh, that has nothing to do what sort of has something to do with the service industry. It's sort of, it's okay. If it doesn't, you don't, don't worry about that. We go yeah, all over the place with this. Uh, and uh, I don't know, is this a family podcast? 
Not that oh, we I know cuss of. all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this Instagram account is called uh, Fuck You, I Quit. And what it does is it gives a forum to people who are having bad experiences with their employers or have been treated badly. And it's kind of, uh, they, they, they present the problem like often in the form of an email or a letter or, or just they tell the story of some tremendous uh, disservice, you know, that they were at the receiving end from their boss. And uh, the, the, the writer, I don't know who writes this feed. Um, He's anonymous, she's anonymous, they're anonymous, uh, but it kind of empowers them. Uh, and, and everyone like goes away and stands up to their bosses and sometimes they get the raise and sometimes they just say, I'm gone and they just feel fantastic and the boss is flabbergasted. Um, these are inspiring stories uh, in a time when, you know, workers are starting to stand up, you know, for their rights a little bit more because of what happened in, their in, in the pandemic. And sometimes they're just funny. I am uh, looking at it right now and I'm definitely here for this. I <laughs> love this kind of stuff. You, you will not regret it. There is something good every day. Um, yeah, I my, one of my favorite ones recently was a post from UCLA, this huge university in this country that has a billion dollar budget. And they were advertising for an adjunct professor in chemistry, I believe. Uh, that had to have a PhD and all kinds of other requirements with no salary. They're saying this position has no salary. Oh, it it's highlighted. Amazing. I'm looking at, I'm oh looking at it right God. now. It says applicants must understand there will be no compensation for this position. Yes. Which like, what? what? How is this it's, real it's, life? It's weird how employers in this country have become so empowered that they feel they can treat people so badly and give them so little and expect the top candidates like everybody it doesn't matter where you apply i could apply for the ace hardware store down the street and they would you know ask do you have a ba and a master's you know and it's just like why yeah why? it's to sell it's, a hammer <laughs> it's it's so strange that um you know and kind of what what you're what you're offered in return and i'm sure i'm sure that you have you know gotten this before but it's like I love when people approach me for stuff, whether it be to, you know, donate time or, or product or something like that. It's like, it's really great exposure for your brand. It's like your charity event that is super localized is great exposure for my brand. It's kind of like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Or I had another uh, opportunity come my way where they're like, well, you know, titles are really, really important. So you could have this title. And I was like, but nobody knows who your organization is. Like, why does that title matter it's it really is incredible kind of like what people um manifest in their in their brains as like yeah, what is what's it's, valuable it's in the writing world as well especially the freelance writing world you know you'll see things on twitter you know it's like you know we're looking for a 2500 word in-depth deeply researched piece on such and such and we can pay you 200 dollars. it's like okay good luck with that yeah yeah <laughs> That's, that's so ridiculous. I remember uh, one of my favorite stories when it comes to kind of like the I quit job. Um, the, uh, it was in Star Trek and it was Next Generation. And um, I'm totally blanking on his name right now, but it was the younger kid that was in it. And um, the whole cast got a raise except for him. And so the, the like 
writers of the show come back to the producers and they're like, like, well, you know, we, we can't give you more money, but we can increase your rank on the show. If that's, if that's good enough for you. Um, to <laughs> Nothing like was, a new title. Yeah. Yeah. And he just was like, yeah, I'll just tell my landlord that now I'm like an instant level three, like he'll totally go for that, which I just thought, you know, so of course they backed off and, and gave him more money, but um, I'm, I feel terrible right now that I'm totally like us. It's going to hit me. And then I'll just yell it during Chris's don't follow. So Chris, what, what is your, what's your don't follow? Uh, mine is an Instagram artist account. Uh, I've been needing a sense of tranquility and uh, I've been enjoying this one actually for many years now. Uh, it's, it's been on the top and uh, when my thread starts kicking it out and it, it like doesn't show up on my timeline, whatnot, I, I go back and, and make sure that I'm, bring it back in because i just enjoy it it's uh underscore the red chair and it's just a photographer who travels around with a red chair and just takes pictures <laughs> I of like the chair in random ass places and they're pretty pretty fantastic photographs sometimes they're humorous and sometimes it's just a really picture of a red chair like <laughs> underneath a really pretty sky it's great um so the guy's name was will wheaton i feel terrible for for oh the actor yeah yeah they told will wheaton that um that's how they yeah he has a good twitter feed i believe he has a great twitter feed he's got (laughs) really a great everything i mean he's a guy that you know could have gone a different direction with his legacy and he's like totally embraced it and um i i man i feel so bad not that he's ever going to find out that i forgot his name briefly about a cool story about him but but that is one thing that's in like the star trek lore is that they kind of hold those promotions over people like they did that in uh to harry kim in the uh in one of the one of the series where they like they never promoted him because the producers didn't like him but then he got named like one of the top 50 like most attractive men by like people magazine they were the year that they were going to fire him and so they couldn't do that because like he's too much of a hot commodity now so yeah that's a whole that's a whole weird world um but so my don't follow this week is actually uh, a local one and it's uh hen of the woods trucky uh, this is a buddy of mine, Michael Murray. He does his own catering company. And I just really like, just love what this guy does. He, you know, he's traveled all over the world and he brings back all these different influences. And I'm trying to convince my wife to let him cater a birthday dinner for me. I don't think I'm going to win, but I am really trying hard right now. Um, Cause he just does all kinds of really fun stuff. And it's always like, if you are just into more esoteric foods and stuff like that. It's a, it's a really good follow. And they're always doing cool events as well. Like he does a lot of dinner pairings with movies. So he does a pairing with the big Lebowski. And oh. um, I just think that's a fun concept and it's a cool thing to check out. So mm-hmm. again, that's a uh, hen of the woods. Truckee is where you can find that Instagram account and see the different things that Michael and his partner are working on. So, so check that one out. Um, but those are some those are some pretty dope follows this week. I like this. All right. The music for the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated by Leon and Chase Moore and produced pretty darn well by us two guys. Before we go kill these bottles that we've been drinking, we ask that if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. I can't pull up my script right now, and I don't remember what to say. But you can uh, follow us on Facebook <laughs> at the Good Bottle Podcast. Uh, at the Good Bottle Podcast, you can also support the Good Bottle Podcast by going to our Etsy shop and getting yourself a beautiful, beautiful, bedazzled fanny pack. They're not bedazzled. I was going to say that's not true. You can, at all. you can get one and then bedazzle it yourself yeah. and show us pictures of it. 
Robert, where can people follow you? And if they want to like, let's say buy one of your books, what, what method of book purchasing do you prefer? Well, if you have an independent bookstore uh, in your neighborhood, I'd prefer you go there. If you can't find it there, if there's no other way, um, there's always Amazon. Um, and the Substack, you just type in robertsimonson.substack.com and it'll come right up. Instagram, if you care, it's uh, Robert O. Simonson and Twitter is R.O. Simonson. I definitely recommend the Instagram again. He's going to give you a lot of FOMO, but it'll be. Yeah, my life is not that interesting. I'm just doing a very good job at it. <laughs> he shares it in all the right ways. Um, if, or if, if you guys want to have any of the things that we drink on today's episode, check out thegoodbottleshop.com. And then if you want to uh, have us cover a story or want to be featured, give us, uh, shoot us an email at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail. And with all of that said, cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Wrong button. Yeah, wrong button. We produce so well until the very end. Until it matters. Until it matters. We're trying to get out of here. What did the, What button? Did you push the wrong button? What happened? I pushed the wrong button. We're going to do no follows does, does again. Does the podcast still exist? Yes, uh, it still exists. Okay, fine. Good. You didn't press the erase button or something like that. No, not okay. yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>